listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We are in this spiritual discipline series, and we've only introduced one discipline, and we've taken about a three-week or four-week hiatus within the series to talk about the wirings that God has made us all in a very particular way. We've talked about these things called spiritual pathways, that each one of us are wired to walk along a predominant pathway to connect with God in our lives. That doesn't mean we don't walk along all the pathways in some way, but some of us connect to God in a very specific way more than others. And so we've talked about the intellectual pathway. We talked about the enthusiast pathway, the serving pathway, the contemplative pathway, the activist pathway, and today we'll talk about the traditionalist pathway, the sensory pathway, and finally the creation pathway. And by the grace of God, we'll be done with the pathways and we'll be able to continue to move in. Now, some of you asked me why we did it this way. Well, we're going to introduce spiritual disciplines that you may not resonate with, like centering prayer or contemplative prayer. And because you're a very charismatic personality or you would rather listen to a sermon than sit down in 30 minutes of prayer, you may think that's the silliest, most mystic, nonsense, Eastern religion stuff you've ever heard in your life. Well, I just wanted to do this so you could understand, A, it's not nonsense to to the people of God. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. It may just be more nonsense to you because it's not how you primarily connect to God. And so I wanted you to feel free to not... Get frustrated with yourself because you don't connect in that discipline. But yet I also wanted you to make sure that you didn't have to judge others who did because we're all wired differently. So in her book, Gertrude Mueller Nelson once said this, and it's a book called To Dance With God. She's a writer and artist. Here's what she said. God proceeded to create with the world, to create a world of order with space, matter, time, life, and humans in his own image. Through ritual and ceremonies, we people in turn make order out of chaos in endless space. We create a fixed point to orient ourselves, sacred space. To timelessness, we impose rhythmic repetitions, the recurrent feast. What is too cast and shapeless, we deal with in smaller manageable pieces. We do this for practicality, but we also do this for high purpose to relate safely to the mysterious, to communicate with the transcendent. Here's what she's saying. We take the grand narrative of Scripture that in Jesus Christ, God was redeeming our souls and our salvation, that this holy God was making us holy through the blood of Jesus. We take this grand ethereal truth and we bring it down to ordered time and space, to rhythm, to repetition, to manage it, to be able to wrap our minds around it. That's all she's saying. Or in baptism, we take this grand message of salvation, of redemption, of of death and life, of, of new birth, and we bring all of that down into this very simple and beautiful, that meaningful moment. Or we take this grand, huge God, this God who is beyond our reach, this God who is beyond our imagination, and we come to Him in worship, who though He is much bigger than our worship, doesn't need our worship. We come to this grand God, what is shapeless and cast, and we bring our worship down to something as simple and as manageable and as practical as worshiping through songs or prayers. That's all she's saying. But it's profound what she is saying. Now, we've seen this happen. In the summer, Allison and Ian and I went to the beach, and the waves were huge. 
Some were larger than I've ever seen at high tide. And I spent years growing up in Panama City, Florida. And I wanted to step out into the ocean, and Ian wanted to go out into the ocean, but these waves were massive. But Ian, you know, being this bold little three-and-a-half-year-old, thought it would be cool, and so we did. And we went out into the ocean, and the waves would come, and we would jump, and I would lift him up, and he would jump over the ocean. It'd be fun. We're having a good old time. You know, I'm good. And he's a little nervous. Daddy, don't drop me. I'm like, dude, look at, the, you know, look at this. I'm not going to drop you. I've got you covered. You know, and, and we're just there, and we're having a good time. And before I even know it, the tsunami hit. And this wave, I don't know how, I mean, literally, I mean, it took out a village. I mean, it came, and it hit us and bowled us over like we were tiny bowling pins. Ian flew out of my arms. Don't tell him that, because he's still trying to reconcile this trauma. But he flew out of my arms. We're in the dirt and in the sand, and we're left with nothing but sand in our shorts. Ian's got sand in his shorts. I've got sand in my shorts. He's angry at me. I broke my promise. Do not overpromise and underdeliver to your children. I dropped the kid. I did. I'm a bad parent. But the waves were huge. And needless to say, from that point forward, he had nothing to do with me in the ocean. But what he would do is he would take this grand, huge, shapeless ocean. He would go to the edge of the beach, and he would dig a little hole. He would sit inside the hole, and when the waves would break, the waters would come and create a little bitty mini ocean, one that he could tame and one that he could control, one that he could play in and he was safe in, one that his daddy couldn't get in and ruin. That is what she's saying. Is we take this grand narrative of God and this beautiful being of who He is and we just simply bring Him down to something called symbols and liturgies and rituals. And we do it every Sunday. But for some of us, we really connect to God through traditionalist sort of approach. It's called the traditionalist pathway. We enjoy God through ritual or liturgical patterns and symbol. Traditionalists are fed... Uh, by the historic dimensions of the faith, like rituals and symbols and, and sacrifice and sacraments and, and liturgy. And we really, I mean, you, we all enjoy the Eucharist, the communion, but some of you, you long for communion. I mean, you long for it every week. Because you may walk this traditionalist pathway. Some of you are asking, are we doing the Advent candles again? And just love the light and love the color and love the, love the green in the winter where everything's dead, but the green is there to represent life. And, and you kind of get it and you are asking about it. And some of you forgot we even do it because we just started last year anyway. And some of you are just like, you know, and some of you just really walk the pathway. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful. See, we look at Paul, and Paul, the apostle, he walked this pathway at times. You see it in his letters. In his letter to the Roman Christians, Paul finds himself in the middle of a deep theological conversation regarding God's relationship with the Israels through this King Jesus, through this Messiah, and this messianic kingdom that all people are now invited into. And Paul then does, in Romans chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, you can go there. In Romans chapter 11, Paul does what he often seems to do when he's in the middle of a deep theological rant or a deep theological conversation. Paul moves right in the middle of this letter, out of nowhere, from theology to something called doxology, which doxology is just a big word that literally describes hymnic praise. In other words, it's not its own genre like a letter. It's its own genre because it's formal language. This is a formal structure. So Paul's writing this loose letter and then all of a sudden busts out into a doxology. He, he busts out into liturgy. 
And in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, and untraceable his ways. He takes the grand bigness of God, and he just wants to talk about it for a minute. And so he poses a poem and a hymn. And he goes on and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid for for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen and then it's like he wakes up from his doxological sort of way and he goes therefore and he gets back to his letter see paul does this a lot in his letters he does it in the book of colossians where he's writing about the salvation of god in christ and he goes into this this whole mantra of this this doxological hymnic praise where he talks about how christ is the firstborn of all creation or in ephesians the whole first 14 verses are doxology or in philippians chapter 2 in the middle of the letter he runs into this poem what this is what you see paul do is you see paul step into the traditionalist pathway for a minute and he creates liturgy right in the middle of his letter. See, for some of us, we grew up in what's called a low church environment, meaning it's a free-form worship experience, meaning it's the tradition of our church here at Williamsburg Christian Church. I don't wear garb, and, and we don't you know, have the incense, and we don't have uh, a lot of the formal readings and prayers. We do our share of that, but we don't just the whole service isn't constructed around that. And for those of you who are raised in a free-form worship environment, that kind of worship seems lifeless to you and seems rote and repetitive. And that's your opinion, even though you don't realize that you do that anyway, just in a less formal way. Now, some of us grew up in what's called a high church environment, where the priest or the preacher or the pastor wore something to identify his status among them, and then we had uh, formal approaches to things, and we had congregational readings, and there were books of prayer, and there were other things going on that were very formed and very structured. And for some of you, for some of you, you had bad experiences with that, but for some of you, as you've been a part of this church, you, you kind of missed that a little bit. That's okay. That's kind of what I'm getting at is, for many of us, we don't understand this traditionalist pathway. Here's what I want to suggest. All of us in this church walk this pathway every Sunday together in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But some of us really, really connect to this pathway more than others. See, Paul, in the new covenant faith of Jesus Christ, still found beauty in place for something that we don't like. We call it religion. Now, many people rightly fear a form of faith that has no substance. And I've heard people say, Christianity is about a relationship, not religion. And I've got to confess to you that that is a very theologically incompatible and incongruent statement in every way whatsoever. Because Christianity is a religion. But here's what we do. We run from the word religion just like Ian runs from the word bedtime. We hear the word and we scatter. And we react to it the same way. Because in our society, religion had become just a church affiliation or a set of doctrines or dogmas or rules. And what we did then is we threw something that is very God-ordained under the bus. James chapter 1, verse 27, uses the word. He would not wear this t-shirt. He says, pure and undefiled religion, it's a biblical word, is not a system or set of dogmas and beliefs, true. Not a lifeless approach to faith, true. He says, pure and undefiled religion is that we look after widows and orphans and keep ourselves unspotted by the world. So see, James would say that religion 
the kind that is pure and undefiled. There's impure and defiled religion in the world. Let's go ahead and get that out on the table. But there is pure and undefiled religion. So pure and undefiled religion is a religion that moves off of its principal tenet of love of God and love of neighbor. Religion is as Christianity is, is Christianity is religion, it's all the same. It is. And a matter of fact, God invented and sometimes commanded religious practices. Religious practices are the way that people embody spiritual truths. This is a religious practice. What we're doing together right now is a religious practice. And hopefully this will lead to a greater love of God and love of neighbor. Hopefully this will lead to a greater love of God and love of neighbor. If it does not, then it is impure, defiled religion. God invented it. Abraham and Moses expressed their faith by building altars, which were acts of religion. Jesus regularly attended synagogue worship and even fasted, which was an act of religion. Peter and John observed regular set times of prayers, as did Jesus, because that's what good Jews did. Even Messianic Jews would recite the Shema three times a day, and that is an act of religion. We must remember something very important about our culture and our misunderstanding and our taking hostage words that are biblical as the day is long and making them something that they're not. So I want to speak to this word just as it's defined in our culture. Religion does not save us. It is incapable. It cannot. You cannot partake communion enough times, sing enough worship songs, and come to enough church services, and God accepts you because you're good or you somehow worked your way to that standard because I take communion every week, and I worship every week, and I memorize the sermons, which if you did, that's just crazy, and I, and I get all this stuff, and, and that will not earn your way to God. We are saved by grace through faith, period. We are saved because of a relationship with Jesus. But when we come into relationship with Jesus, we enter into a religious way of life. One that is defined by loving God and loving neighbor and keeping ourselves unspotted by the sinful rebellion of the world. And rituals and symbols and sacrifice, liturgies embody this. So, we as a religious people worship through Eucharist. We worship through songs. We worship through readings of Scripture and offerings of praise. We worship through doxology like we did earlier as we did a congregational reading for an Advent prayer. We worship through regular attendance through large worship gatherings. We worship through a variety of ways. We worship principally and above all with our lives and how we live it. just want to dispel the bad theology. Religion is not safe. That is good theology. Relationship with Jesus does. But a relationship with Jesus does constitute a religious way of life because it means our life is different from the rest of the world. And we express that and it's embodied in this traditionalist pathway. And so I want to, I want to, I want to praise those of you who walk this pathway. I don't particularly walk this pathway. You may assume I do because I've introduced some of these things, but I don't particularly walk it. I just think it's a deep and beautiful pathway that many of you walk, and so it makes sense for us to also have this as a part of our gathering. But you who walk this traditionalist pathway tend to have a disciplined life of faith. This just seems to be your way of life. Order and structure mean a lot to you, so it makes sense that your relationship with God have order and structure and that that means a lot to you. That helps free-form, spontaneous people like myself. I can use some order and structure in my life. So thank you. 
You also see the beauty and wonder in ritual and structure, just like Paul did. Paul loved to talk about communion, it seemed, but he didn't love to talk about communion as much as he loved to talk about baptism. He loved to talk about ritual and sacrament and wonder. He loved breaking into doxology in the middle of a letter. You see the beauty and the wonder in ritual, whereas some of us, we just don't get it. It seems a bit mundane, but you can help us see the beauty of it. Even though this church's heritage is not one of Advent candles and congregational readings and prayers, you see some beauty in this, and you open up a world to God that we haven't seen before. But there are some temptations along this pathway. One of the temptations is that we can serve God without knowing God. Religion can serve faith, but it cannot substitute for faith or ever replace faith. So don't allow the structures and the liturgies and the symbols and the rituals to become your idol. If you've come to believe that the only way to worship God is through religious structure and symbol and liturgy, or to not have any religious structure, symbol, or liturgy, then you may want to reconsider your theology of worship. Because all of this is a means to an end. We don't worship Eucharist. We worship the one to whom Eucharist points us to. We don't worship worship. We worship the one to whom worship points us to. We can fall into the trap of worshiping this or worshiping this. And so be careful of serving God without knowing God. Also be careful of neglecting the social love your neighbor obligations. Because for a lot of people, religion becomes about system of beliefs. And it doesn't have any impact on how we love our neighbor. So Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23 to a bunch of religious people that religion without substance is indeed hypocrisy. And so he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin. You do some religious things. Yet you neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have done, been done without neglecting to others. It is a both and, not an either or. Beware of falling into the trap of either or. Another temptation is that you could fall into the trap of judging others. Religious practices can be powerful and they can enhance a person's faith, but it can also destroy a corporate faith if it's used to criticize, measure, or divide. Paul said it this way to the Colossian church in verse 16, chapter 2. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the manner of a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These were religious institutions. These are shadows of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. All of the liturgies and sacraments and symbols and things that we are a part of point to Jesus. They're not the sum total of our life. If you have fallen into the trap of thinking you have a relationship with God because you go to church, then you have missed a point of being part of a church. We gather not because we need something else to do in our lives, don't we? Like We're not sticking around for 30 minutes after service because we just need something to do at 12 from 12 to 12.30. We do it because we follow Jesus, and Jesus is in the places we need to be, and so we go to where he is. And part of that means being in the midst of his people and gathering and worshiping him, but the reason of all of this is Jesus, not activity. Be careful not to fall into the trap of just activity. That will lead you to repeating religion mechanically, which is the next temptation. Like many things, without attention, ritual can become mundane and mechanical, just like even Eucharist can or worship songs can. So I want to offer some training for those who walk along this pathway. Find a special way in your home to celebrate the religious holidays. I'll give you an example. For, for my family, what we're doing this year is we're actually going to celebrate Advent in our home. We're, we have Advent candles set up, 
And we're going to walk through every Sunday night. We're going to light the new candle just like we do as a church family. And then every night when we have dinner, we're going to light that candle again and we're going to burn it. And I'm going to let Ian be a part of that. Now, I don't want to force Ian down a pathway he's not wired to walk, but I don't know if he's wired to walk this pathway. He's only four years old. He may be. And if he is, then he's going to find beauty in this. If he'd rather play with the superheroes, believe me, he will let me know. We will still do it. And what we'll do is we're going to recite Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's an adaptation. I kind of took it and adapted it for a kid to read it. And I'll tell you this, by the time Advent is over, doing this every night, we'll at least, my family will have this scripture memorized, if nothing else. And, and Christmas will mean something more to us. That's just what we're doing. You do something for your family. If you want to invite your children down this pathway, because if Ian is raised to be a contemplative, if that's how he's wired, I want him, he's still called by God to experience God in these forms. And so I want them to have that experience. So find ways to celebrate Good Friday or Easter or Christmas or Pentecost. Read Scripture aloud, particularly New Testament or Psalms. Develop your own call to worship and prayers and recite them often. Purchase a common book of prayer and read and pray the daily offices. Another way of training, if you want to train kind of in that aspect of symbols, set up the Advent candles in your home and just set them up. Or have symbols as you pray. Or in your pocket, a lot of us are familiar with prayer beads. They actually have a point. Or maybe some of you carry a cross in your pocket and that reminds you of something as you pray. Some of you carry a stone in your pocket that reminds you as you pray that Christ is the cornerstone. Or some of you whose marriage has fallen apart, maybe if you walk along this pathway, you should pray with a paper clip in hand seriously and pray and let it remind you to keep your marriage together. Or, or for some of you who just need something tangible because that's kind of how you walk, then just find a way. Or better yet, if, you, if you're a Christian who has, you know, you, you appeal to Christian art, then have symbols in your home that, that, that you can place that point to 2,000-year-old traditions of, of Christianity, an anchor that means hope, an arrow that means martyrdom and pain, or a banner, triumph, or, or whatever. You can look these up, or I can give you uh, these things. I can give you the detail. You can look them up. But just have these in your home, and, and it constantly helps you train in your, in your faith with God and keeps them ever before you. And, for some of us, this will mean nothing, but for some of us, this will mean a lot. I just want to encourage you to do that. And that's the traditionalist pathway. See, there was a time when God's people were commanded to observe a meal called Passover. See, Passover involved all five senses, to touch and smell the roasted lamb. It was a religious practice where they touched and they smelled the roasted lamb, where they tasted the bitter herbs that reminded them of the death of the firstborns of Egypt, where they heard the sounds of the story of Exodus being told, where they did it in, and saw other people in their community and in their homes gather around this meal and this, to celebrate this deliverance of the Lord called Exodus. So God gave them this religious activity that captured all five of their senses, and this became a very pivotal point in the life of a Israelite. But see, we also have the Eucharist. Today, God's people are commanded to observe the Lord's Supper. It captures all five of our senses as well if we let it. The touch and the taste and the smell of the bread and the wine, the sound of the story of redemption being shared and, and being rehearsed in the context of a gathering and, and seeing all of God's people coming together. It captures all five of our senses. And, and we, we come at this symbol, this table. We have a table for a reason as a symbol of communion because it's the Lord's table and he sits at the host where we're invited at the table that's why we have a table if you didn't know that even if you just showed up here 48 years ago and a table was what you needed to buy and you didn't even know why you needed to buy it because that's all we had it well you always had it because it always had a symbolic purpose and it captures all five of our senses and on that table we have written doing this in remembrance of me where we see why we do what we do 
In Scripture, we see Ezekiel in chapters 1 through 3. He feels a wind, sees flashing lightning, hears the sound of wings, and is asked to eat a scroll that tastes sweet. And after all of this, all five senses experience, Ezekiel has to sit silent, stunned for seven days what he's experienced. God just overwhelmed his being. John had a similar experience, remember? He was writing the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, and he was overwhelmed by loud trumpet voices and blazing eyes and sounds of rushing waters, and he wrote these letters, and he, was, he dropped almost as if dead. There are those in our midst who walk along the sensory pathway where we enjoy God through the senses, and we are lost in the awe and the beauty and the splendor of God, and we're drawn to the majestic and grandness of God, and we want to be filled with sights and sounds and smells that overwhelm us. The five senses are God's most effective inroad to our hearts, like it was some of the others. And so we may capture certain things about certain activities that we do as a church family because I'm the guy who captures that in all five senses, if that's who I am. Some Christians are just moved by this kind of sensuous worship more than others. And so I want to offer the strengths and temptations along the pathway of the sensory pathway. Those of you who walk this pathway, you remind us to keep our whole being open to God. See, for those of us who are intellects, in other words, we walk the intellectual pathway, not that we're intellects, but that we walk along the intellectual pathway, we we need to be reminded to open our hearts from time to time. Because we really enjoy God with our mind. You remind us to enjoy God with everything. So thank you for being you. When worship is reduced to only a very particular experience, you remind us that to worship God in a very one-way, sort of narrow, myopic approach cripples our worship. But you also remind us of a need for a godly passion. You remind us that Christianity without beauty becomes a disembodied religion of the mind. And so you remind us that, that God can be glorified through all five senses and that He created us with all five of these senses and has given us even things to participate in that envelops all five senses. So thank you for calling us out of our minds or out of our narrow roads into this five-cent sort of pathway. But there are some temptations, some temptations for you. Worshiping without content could be one very strong temptation. In other words, you could get so swept away by the acoustic guitar and the, and the harmonies and the melodies of the, of the, of the vocalists and the, and the ringing of the piano and the way it just moves in that percussive sort of way, the way a piano moves. And, and you could get caught up in the gathering and the, and the sounds and the beauty and the, the atmosphere and miss the entire time the words you were singing to God. And so we could find ourselves in this place where we just, where we're, you know, we're singing, I surrender all, but yet we know in every fiber of our being there's that thing we are not even remotely surrendering to God. See, I like the song, and I've got to say this differently than I did first service. I like the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. I like it. I like the way it moves, I like the way it flows, I like the way our praise band does it. I can't stand the song. I can't sing it. I can't sing it because I struggle with the chorus. I struggle with the bridge of the Course specifically that says, He gives and takes away, He gives and takes away, still I will say, blessed be your name. I don't know if I can say that. So when I sing it, that becomes a prayer for me. And so I've got to be careful not to get lost in the, in the this and in the that, and then all of you guys singing it and the upbeat nature of it and the way our team sings it to make sure that I drop down and say, you know, I'm really, God, I want to be okay with what you're giving and taking away. 
We've got to be in a place, church, where when we sing and when we worship, we're not lost in these things. Words may be sung with no more emotion than placing an order for a number one at Chick-fil-A. And i got to tell you, when I place a number one at Chick-fil-A, I do it with passion. But I know some of you, you just order it. It's just kind of what you do. And we've got to make sure, especially those who walk along the sensory pathway, that you don't find yourself just falling into that trap. Make sure you don't fall into worshiping without content. Another thing is that we could idolize beauty, those who walk along this pathway. Someone could leave a very beautiful worship service, satisfied by the sensuous experience. All five senses were captured without having ever entered the true presence of God. I mean, all the candles and the light and the smell and the music and the sounds and, and the gathering. And oh, it was just a, God was there. It was just a beautiful time. And the whole time have missed what God was trying to do in you. So be careful not to fall into the trap, those who walk along this pathway of idolizing the beauty. And then some of us fall into the trap of worshiping worship. And sadly, this isn't just a sensory pathway Christian's problem. This is a lot of our struggle. See, a lot of us could just, we make judges on church. We make judgments on churches based on the worship style. Churches fight and divide over worship style. And I, I, I still, now I was an acapella boy. Like I grew, again, remember, you guys were, y'all were up the creek with the guitar thing. We were worshiping the way God was honored because we just sang and no instruments. That was who we were. And that was, the, that was the way it was for us. That was genuinely my tradition growing up. And, and part of that was you could never really fall into the trap of worship wars, but we did. Because then you entered, you know, contemporary songs versus hymns. And can people stand up here and sing? And do people just have to sit there? And can people even clap? And can people not? And what we ended up finding out is even in an acapella environment where we didn't have all the complicated instruments, we were still fussing and dividing over worship. And the thing, thing happens even with the instrument. It's been the most divisive thing in the, in the Christian church for 2,000 years, the instrument. Because churches fight over organ and guitar and drum, contemporary, old, new, this, that, and the other, where they stand, where they sit. And we forget the entire time that worship is a means to an end of glorifying God. But you'd never tell. Because we move the table over here to there, there to here. We, we, we sing this, how great... Uh, thou art instead of how great is our God and man it just you never know that we don't worship worship so all of us need to be mindful of this I think but especially those of us who find worship to be this washing over us kind of experience so I want to offer you some training those who walk along the sensory pathway in terms of sound just read scripture aloud or play an instrument Bang a gong. <laughs> Certain age group just got that reference. <laughs> or maybe for smell, light some incense, light some candles. Remember, it's a means, not an end. Last year during Christmas, I had in my office some frankincense and myrrh. I just wanted this. I'd never smelt it. And they gave it to Jesus. I figured it must smell good. Remember the story where they offer the frankincense and myrrh? That really, I really had a real reason for this. And so I thought, well, it's Christmas season, then I'll order the frankincense and myrrh, and I would smell it. Frankincense smells all right, myrrh not so much. <laughs> but I would just, as I would meditate on Advent last year, I would smell the frankincense and myrrh. You can do that. That actually was helpful for me. It kind of pointed, it kind of ushered me into the story personally. And I'm not a sensory pathway guy, I don't think. But you may try something like that. Or right, what about touch? 
where you hold a paperclip as you pray, as you think about your marriage, or, or you hold a rubber band that can help you pray uh, for more of a pliable heart, or you wear an orange bracelet, that because orange is the color of hope and uh, for AIDS orphans in Africa, and so every time you see it and you pray, you know to pray for those who are dying of AIDS and those who are orphans especially, and to pray for the cure of AIDS. Yesterday was, was, was uh, a World AIDS Day, and, and so you know there are different ways to go about that and to go about... Uh, just capturing your senses. How about sight? You could do the same thing. You could check out religious art or symbols, and we've already talked about that. Or maybe even taste. As you pray that God make you the salt of the, make you uh, live a life that is the salt of the earth. You can taste some salt as you pray, or or as you eat bread. Remember that Jesus is the bread of life. For some of you, this just becomes very natural. This is a way to train your senses. And then there's a creation pathway, the one that you all have asked about. When Allison's mother was quickly losing the battle of cancer, I, I was in a place where, with God where doubt was overshadowing my belief. And I had prayed and believed with all my heart that she would be made well. And I would think, after all, you know, Allison and I had only been married six months. She was diagnosed with cancer about two weeks after her honeymoon. And, and so I thought, well, God is powerful. Surely he will not do this. And especially when I considered that Allison's dad had died of cancer when she was little, I thought, surely God wouldn't take her mother. That was just going through my head. And Barbara was such a godly and beautiful woman. I thought, man, God's got to have a need for a woman like that in this world. And she was so young. And so I found that despite the fact that I believed in a God who was healer, powerful, that she was just getting sicker and it was getting clear that God wasn't going to heal her. And so on a rainy day, in the late afternoon, I was making the drive by myself from Columbus, Georgia to Birmingham, Alabama, where her mother was in the hospital, Allison's mom. And I was looking up to the sky, this gray, cloudy, rain-filled sky, and I was just praying and crying and screaming to God, begging Him just to intervene and heal this woman. And as I was driving down the road, I'll never forget it as long as I have breath, that, that the clouds began to part just a little and, and some sunlight just started to peek through the clouds. And as my eyes followed the sunlight, it led me to this rainbow. And it was the most beautiful rainbow I've ever seen in my life. And I pulled over. I had to. And I sat on the wet hood of my car and I just stared at the rainbow. And at that moment, I remembered the story of Noah and why God gave us a rainbow in the first place. To remind us that no matter what has been done or what we feel or what we think is happening, a rainbow reminds us that God keeps His promises and that He is faithful. And at that moment, I felt like the Lord was saying to me, Fred, no matter how you feel or what happens, I am faithful and good. Remember that. And so I wiped my eyes and got in my car and rode on to Birmingham. It was as if God met me in creation. That hadn't happened a lot for me. But when it has happened, it's become what the Bible would call an Ebenezer. A memorial stone of help. A time when I remember that God broke into my present through creation. And then I'm, I line my heart up with the psalmist in Psalm 8 when he says, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you would remember him? The son of man that you look after him. 
It's like when I see all the billions of stars in the sky and the, and the power of the, of the mountain and the, the strength of the ocean, I think, why would you even care about little old bitty me who gets bowled over by the ocean at the drop of a hat? Why do you even care? And he says in verse 6, you made him man, he goes to Genesis 2, you made him lord of the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. In other words, he points back and he says, but yet when you made man, you told man to be ruler over all of creation and care for it and, and steward it under your rulership. Of course, sin broke that. And then he closes verse 9, Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. See, there are those of us here who walk along the creation pathway. We would rather leave the church building and just go into God's grand cathedral called the world, a place that God himself built, and just worship the Lord. You resonate with the psalmist and Chapter 19, verse 1, who said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the, sky, the skies proclaim the works of His hands. You see the fingers of God everywhere, and that is one of your great strengths to the kingdom of God. And I want to talk about those strengths for a moment. You see God's fingerprints everywhere. You, you believe with all your heart that God can never be boring, that His creative power is always around us, and that He, despite our loneliness, God is always present even in the sunset. You think of Garrett Lobster, for instance. If you follow him on Facebook, he's got a sunset picture or a sunrise picture picture it seems like every three days it's like it all looks the same to me i mean it's beautiful it just i kind of all looks the same orange purple blue i mean i love it pretty but you know but he walks a creation pathway that when he sees that sunset something happens in him and he just wants to share it and it reminds me that sunsets aren't boring and mundane they're beautiful and majestic see but you also remind us that despite the world's brokenness beauty can always be found that in the midst of our tears driving down the road on a rainy day you remind us that a rainbow points to the presence of God. But there are also some weaknesses that come along, some temptations that come along and on this pathway. One is individualism. This idea that you don't need others to worship God. Well, that is not the way Christianity was designed. That is not even how creation itself works. It is interdependent upon itself. We are interdependent upon one another. Beware of that individualism. Some of you could fall into the trap of spiritual delusion. And then begin idolizing nature. It's where you fall into the heresy of pantheism. Where you think that, and I want you to hear my phrasing very carefully. That instead of saying the earth is the Lord's pantheism twist. That the earth is the Lord. That we begin to see not only God in nature, but that nature becomes God. And we use phrases like mother nature as if nature has its mind of its own. That there's not a sovereign God over it all. And so beware of thinking that creation is God. God is in the creation. But he is not creation. He is still God. So I want to offer some training for you as we close out this part of the series. Fully commit your life to Christ as creator. The more you appreciate the creator, the more you'll appreciate his creation. The more you'll keep it in its proper perspective. Meditate upon the greatness of creation. The mountains, the sky, and the oceans all portray the immense power and the wisdom and goodness of God. Meditate upon the variety of creation, plant and animal life, and, and all of the different shapes and colors and shades that God's beauty cannot be merely contained, and His creative nature cannot be merely contained. It take a lifetime to examine the variety of creation. But then meditate upon the beauty of creation, how God's world does come in many shapes and colors and sizes, and 
how God's beauty is beyond just one form. Meditate upon the abundance of creation. That God made all of the stars in the sky and all of the plants and the trees and all of the animals and all of the things that are in it. That he owns a land of a thousand cattle. If you can remember God's abundance in creation, it might change the way you view your finances. Meditate upon the value of creation. See, the value of creation isn't found just in this trendy idea of going green. It's so sad that we've allowed theology to be uh, taken hostage by political discourse. Caring about creation and caring about the earth and being good stewards of it is rooted in our identity as those created by a creator in Genesis 1 and 2. Period. It's just there. It always has been. And it's spoken of throughout all of, of, of Scripture. We should care about the world. Meditate upon the value of creation. God gave it to us to enjoy it and to rule over it and subdue it, to see Him in it. See, all of this is given to us so that we would come to a place in our lives to where we would say, above all things, that when I hear the Word of God or when I take communion or when I uh, watch someone be baptized into Christ or when I utter a prayer or when I worship God through a song or when I see the stars or when I smell the, the bread and the wine or, or when I come to God in this place where I just drop down within myself and just enjoy His presence in my silence, that all of this is given to us so that we would come to one simple statement. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is what God wants coming from us in every way. That is the end to all of these means is to come to a place where we stand in awe of who God is in Jesus Christ. And that is where all these pathways are designed to go, is to lead us to the one who knows us best and loves us most in Jesus Christ, the one who has done everything for us that we could never do, the one who will continue to do so, the one who has made himself available to us because he just simply loves us.